Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabisch. I'm joined today by Max Galka, who is a man of mystery, shall we say. <laughs> a man who has created lots of really cool visualizations. Um, you may have seen his recent project, A History of U.S. Immigration. We're going to talk about that and some other uh, very cool projects he's been working on. Max, welcome to the show. Well, glad to be here, John. Thanks for coming on. Um, why don't we start, since I, I'm not sure a lot of people in the data of this field, I'm not, I'm not sure they know uh, a lot about you. So why don't we start by having you talk a little bit about yourself, and I want to dive into some of these uh, some of these great projects. Sure, sure. So um, I have, um, as I imagine a lot of people that you speak to do, I have quite a, a varied background. I've worked in a lot of different industries in a lot of different ways. So I started my career trading mortgage-backed securities, um, which had very little to do with data. That was kind of the, uh, the stereotypical trader job of doing tons of trades uh, all throughout the day, very stressful. And I sort of, uh, from there, made my way to working with more complex financial products. Mm -hmm. So uh, I spent most of my career trading insurance-linked derivatives, which is really sort of the opposite end of the trading spectrum. Um, so instead of doing 200 trades a day, it would be maybe one or two trades a month. Mm. Uh, so at that point, it's really much less a trading job than it is a modeling job. Right. Looking at these trades and really understanding what the risk is. So that's really where most of my experience working with data comes from. So modeling things like um, hurricanes, earthquakes, stuff like that is, is just very, very data intensive. Right. So that's where uh, I spent the bulk of my career. Uh, since then, I have uh, um, worked on a number of projects, startups, I guess, although not all of them are revenue generating, so I don't know if you can call them startups, but uh, I started a, a real estate data-related business. Well, well, they started, so, you know, yeah, you've got, you've got that, so they've started. Okay. Yes, yes, they, they started, so I guess that makes them startups. Right. Uh, yeah, so I, I started a, a, a real estate data-related business called Revaluate, which I, uh, I exited um, about a year ago. Since then, I have worked on a uh, freedom of information related project uh, called FOIA Mapper, which I launched earlier this year. Metrocosm is the site where I do uh, my data visualization work, uh, which I've been doing for about a year now, mm -hmm. and have a, uh, another project coming up called Truth From Data that um, we'll be launching shortly. Right. So I want to talk about uh, both the FOIA Mapper and the Truth From Data uh, project, but let's start with some of the, the data visualization projects you've done. Um, the most recent one is the history of, of U.S. immigration. Can you talk a little bit about why you created that visualization and what your thought process was as you were creating it? So for those who haven't seen it, it's a map of the world with circles flowing back and forth uh, from the different uh, countries into the U.S. So you just talk a little bit about the project and how you built it and, and what, your, what your thought process was going into it? Sure, sure. So uh, what I like about doing these data visualizations and what the work I do on, on Metrocosm, I sort of enjoy digging into, you know, sometimes political questions or other questions that are out there and looking at it from a very analytical, data-driven perspective. So this is one that I've looked at with all the discussion right now about immigration. Uh, I wanted to dig into the data and kind of really see, okay, you know, what is the reality about, uh, about immigration to the U.S.? How many people are coming over? Why are they coming over? Where are they coming from? Mm -hmm. And it turns out there's actually a very, very uh, rich set of data that the government um, makes public about, uh, about that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I think I, I don't get too much into uh, political views um, when I post stuff. I try to keep it pretty objective and let mm -hmm. people reach their own conclusions. But 
really my view is, is that um, some of the uh, discussion going on about immigration has gotten a little bit out of hand. Uh, you know, I, I fully understand where people are coming from with um, their illegal immigration mm-hmm. and problems that's causing for, for certain people, certain families. Um, but, you know, a lot of the talk right now is kind of getting into legal immigration. Uh, yeah. Pause on that. And I think that's um, just makes no sense from so many different levels. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think uh, if, if there is a message that I wanted to communicate with uh, with this graphic is that, um, you know, we're really a country of uh, immigrants. And, you know, that's sort of a cliche. People say that a lot. But, um, yeah, I mean, in, in reality, I would imagine uh, in this map it shows every uh, everyone who's come over here uh, since 1820 when the country had about 10 million people, total population. So I, uh, I would be pretty shocked if anyone in the country is not descended from somebody who's come over since then. Um, so, you know, when, when you see comments out there, people saying things like, you know, we've been opening the door to the world for the last 200 years. I think the we is sort of, um, regardless of what your ultimate political view is, I think that we is sort of misplaced. Yeah. It's really, uh, all of us had ancestors that came over here looking for a better life. I think should have a little more respect for the uh, the fact that um, yeah, really just for the our history. Sure, sure. We're allowed to come here. So, can I ask a little bit about the the process you went through to create this particular visualization? So, how did you end up in a both a map format and then also an animated format? I think that's what I think that's what sort of people really got engaged with. Is it actually sort of the animation? allows you to look at the, the data and the, and the visualization in kind of a different way than, you know, your sort of standard interactive where you click and you move things around, that sort of thing. So, so how did you end up in that, in that particular approach? Well, uh, I mean, that, that's something that I'm, I'm really big on is, uh, is animated visualization. I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg, this is just general for content, but he made some comment about within the next few years, the majority of content online is going to be video. It's going to be animated. Mm-hmm. I think it just it just makes sense. I mean, it gives you an entire additional dimension by which to, uh, you know, when it comes to visualizations, to communicate information. I mean, I, I think making graphics animated doesn't require that much additional work, and it just makes the entire dimension richer and more engaging and clearer. Right. And so you're building these in D3 and JavaScript? This one, it uses D3 all the way through, but D3 is traditionally used with SVG. Yeah. So, so SVG is what I used for the background map. Okay. Um, but the problem with SVG, uh, where it's limited, is with the uh, you can't have too many things moving around on the screen at the same time. So mm-hmm. that's where Canvas comes in. So the uh, the little particles that are moving around, those are done using Canvas. Gosh. Cool. So let me pivot just a little bit because you've also written on maps. You've written that great blog post. You're a big fan of cartograms. Yes. Um, so can you talk a little bit about what you see as the advantages and disadvantages of cartograms? We are now entering, or we've been in the political cycle for a while. We're going into yes. the general now. We're going to see lots of choropleth maps with reds and blues. Um, yeah. We'll see people yelling about that in different ways. Um, so what about what about the cartogram intrigues you? And do you see that as maybe that'll be the standard map that we'll be looking at soon? I don't know if it'll be the standard map. I think for for certain purposes, and it's uh, I think the uh, political maps is a very good example. Mm-hmm. I, they make a lot more sense in some cases. So for political maps, when you're looking at elections, I think it should be the standard. Yeah, something that we're all familiar with is looking at the uh, 
country in the red and blue states, the area is broken out, right? And the country always looks like entirely red with a few little patches of blue. Right. It's always funny. Okay, how is, you know, how are these elections always so close? Well, yeah, right. The whole broken. map is red except for these states on the, on the, on the coast, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and if, if you do the color by, uh, by smaller regions, by county, it's even more exaggerated. Yeah. Because you have all the dense little cities uh, going Democrat and everything else Republican. You know, I wouldn't go so far as to say it's it's misleading to do that, but it doesn't really accurately convey the information. You know, mm. it, you can have, uh, well, you do have gigantic uh, segments of the population that live within tiny little areas. When you just use color on a map, it just conveys no sense of magnitude. You know, color is great for when you're comparing two different areas and trying to say, is this area more than this area? For example, if you're looking at uh, two different states and you're looking at the populations, color them accordingly, you could say, okay, does state A have a greater population than state B? And you can answer that very easily just looking at color. But what you can't really communicate well with color is how much bigger is the population of state A than state B. Yeah, that, that's really the advantage of, of cartograms. You can also use color. Mm. So you can still do, uh, do that. But distorting the dimensions of the regions uh, just is a much better way of communicating magnitude. There's a trade-off there, right? Like you get this, the, the color on the map is is perhaps more accurately distributed but then you you distort the geography and i feel like yeah. that's what people love about maps that they know that they live in buffalo new york and they can go see that point in new york sure. and then when you distort the map it's harder to see so yes i mean maybe there is no balance maybe there is no right right way i mean how do you how do you get people to engage with a map where it doesn't really resemble the geography that they're familiar with yeah, I think there's a really simple solution for that. This is what I do on my website, is um, you make them animated. And this kind of gets right back to uh, to what we were discussing before about yeah. the animation, is if you animate cartograms, so they start off with the geography you're familiar with, and then they change to distort it. Yeah. By seeing that transition, you can pretty clearly tell which area is which. I made a map like that that shows the total property value of every county in the U.S. Just looking at the cartogram itself, there would really be no way of... Uh, knowing which little area is which, maybe by looking at the whole thing, you could tell that it's the U.S., although even that, uh, I think, is not uh, so clear. Mm -hmm. But by animating it, uh, you can see very clearly where everything comes from. You can see Manhattan, which starts off as like uh, barely visible, grows into a pretty big share of uh, right. the country. So when you're building the animation in a visualization like that where you're transitioning between sort of traditional map and a cartogram map, how, what are you thinking about when it comes to the timing for each of the different views that, that someone's going to see? So they see sort of a standard map and then it morphs into another map. Are you, how are you thinking about how long each piece of that visualization should show up on someone's screen? Hmm. There's something I, I, I've given too much thought to. I think uh, as I've done it, I've tried to just make it long enough to... Where you're comfortable and... Just make it clear. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. You can see the map and see where each place is and then be able to follow the transition to what it looks like in the cartogram. Right. Very cool. Well, um, speaking of making things clear, uh, I want to talk about another project you have. This is your uh, FOIA mapper project that you mentioned earlier. This is a project funded by the Knight Foundation. It won a prototype fund award. Um, so can you give folks a, a background on, on that? It certainly has an, a really interesting background, not just what it does, but actually a really cool background to it. Yeah, FOIA is something that I've, I've used for uh, several years now, and I've used in many different capacities. So I, I mentioned that I used to model hurricanes and earthquakes. A lot of that data I was able to get using freedom of information. So specifically, what I really needed to, to build those models was accurate information about the amount of damage that was done by past uh, disasters on a very granular level. That kind of information is really not available online, but uh, I discovered that you can 
get pretty detailed information by requesting it using freedom of information. Sort of hard to describe, but mm -hmm. as I got looking at the freedom of information, I found it to be something that is it's just uh, really striking how much information is out there and how powerful this law is. It's, uh, it's used by only you know, a very small number of people, mm -hmm. but the amount of information that is out there is just uh, that you have access to the freedom of information is just enormous. Can you talk? Can you talk a little bit about the process of actually submitting a FOIA request? Because I think I think perhaps one of the reasons that people that there are so few requests is that people think it's this huge administrative burden to go in and, and make this request. But I don't think that's that's quite the case, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. Yeah, I, I think that um, there are some people that will spend lots of time laboring over the request to make sure it's worded just perfectly. But in reality, doing that only kind of is a, is a marginal difference. Yeah terms of whether you get the information or not. Really, you can make a request is, is the simplest thing in the world. It, it's uh, You find the email address for the government agency that has the information you want. You write in plain English what you want. And really, that's it. <laughs> it's, it's that simple. Yeah, you know, like when I, when I started this project, um, a lot of people, when they asked me what it does, uh, you know, they were asking me if it helps you make the FOIA requests, mm -hmm. uh, which... I, I sort of find to be, I don't know, sort of an odd question. Right. It, it, like if you could write an email, you can yeah. make a FOIA request, right? Yeah, exactly. Just, yeah. just type out what you want. Right. Uh, that's really it. So what does the FOIA mapper do then? So what does make requests difficult, uh, is what I found, is that there's no uh, directory online that tells you what information each government agency has. Mm. So that's really the time-consuming part is um, finding the information that's out there requires going to agency websites and looking through reports and maybe there's a mention of some database in a report and then you submit a request for it and maybe that request gets denied but in the process you figure out more information about what this thing actually is uh, so that's really the challenge so what I have done is I have uh, sort of gone after the problem in two different ways uh, the first way is uh, I guess I would call it like a FOIA hack which is what they call FOIA logs, which is just a list of requests that other people have submitted to an agency. So you can see exactly what other people asked for. You can see who asked for it. And that gives you uh, some clues as to what information this agency has. Mm -hmm. So what I did is I, I went out and requested that information from a bunch of different agencies, said, hey, I'd like to see every request you've received over the last few years. So it's requesting the requests? Yes, as easy as making an actual FOIA request. Uh, yeah, in fact, it's one of the easiest ones to make because every government agency is familiar with these requests. Every okay. government agency. Uh, so if you say I request your FOIA logs mm -hmm. for last year, then then don't they know exactly what you're talking about? Okay. No good chance they already have it processed and on hand and ready to send out. Mostly they arrive in PDF format, which is uh, kind of a pain in the neck to deal with. Extracting <laughs> uh, information with PDFs is before I started doing it, it is uh, I had no idea, what, <laughs> uh, and I still don't understand why it's so difficult. But it, it is it is really challenging. I have to get someone from Adobe on the show to find out. Yes, but yeah, yeah. I I, uh, I look forward to seeing that. <laughs> yeah. Um. So yeah, so I I took uh, this information, I extracted it, uh, put it into a database, and made it searchable. So you can search by topic. Type in, I think, some of the examples I get up there. Hillary Clinton, and you mm -hmm. can see what information people are requesting about Hillary Clinton. Uh, UFOs, any, any, any topic of interest. And are you, is this, a, is this a living project? Do you continually update it, or is it sort of now, well, so it needs to be continually updated, I would guess. Yeah. You know. 
Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So it, it is. And there's another side of, of the project too, which I think is the area that I, I originally envisioned and where I think it has the most room to grow. There is documentation online about what information government agencies have. Or I should say some of it's online, some of it you need to actually request, similar to the FOIA logs. Um, and it's, it's kind of covered in a number of different kinds of documents that aren't really intended as like a, uh, a, a directory of information mm-hmm. of databases, but they do contain that information. So, for example, the information that's on there now is what they call record disposition schedules. So agencies, for every, uh, every record system they have, they have to decide, get approved, the amount of time that they're going to keep the information and what they're going to do with it once that time period runs out. So that information uh, I've gone out and collected, and these documents have descriptions of each of these record systems. So that's another database that I have that's searchable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a number of really different kinds of documents out there like that, like what they call RFPs, when an agency actually builds these uh, record systems. They have to give the instructions to the person who builds it, and those instructions give you a pretty good detailed description of what's in this database. So, yeah, I mean, in concept, it's it's one thing to know that um, if you're looking for information about, throw out an arbitrary topic, uh, noise, mm-hmm. which is a problem. Uh, it's a, something I dealt with in my real estate startup. Is that noise is something that really bothers people. Right, right, right. So, if you're looking for information on noise, you might find out that. Um, uh, the FAA has information about airplane noise, they have an airplane noise database. But actually understanding what information is in there is is really another challenge. Yeah. So my hope is to get enough documentation about these different record systems that uh, someone can type in noise, for example, and they'll see a list of record systems. So they'll say, okay, oh, the FAA has information about uh, airplane noise. And then they can dig in further and see, okay, great. This is exactly the information they have. Mm-hmm. So now I can ask them for uh, you know, a very, very precise request with exactly the information that I want. I gotcha. I see. So so you're actually helping people craft their FOIA requests? Yes. In right. in a sense, yes. Yeah. So FOIA requests are very easy to write right. if, if, if you, you know. know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So this is giving you the information uh, about uh, helping you figure out what right. it is to right. ask. Very good. Um, let's talk about uh, another project that you have, which is not quite out yet. It's something called Truth From Data. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about that and when folks are going to be able to, uh, to see it. So Truth From Data is uh, a business I'm starting with a, uh, my co-founder, Lee Godfrey, who is a guy I've known for a long time and was actually my, my first boss when I started my career. Uh, the two of us both have uh, combined have a lot of experience working with data in a lot of different industries in a number of different capacities. And just very generically, uh, in, in concept, we, we both see just an enormous opportunity out there uh, with data analytics. Mm. And it, it sounds sort of generic in that sense, but and it is, but there is so much data out there that could be helpful in making decisions and generating value and solving problems. Uh, it really needs specialized help mm. uh, in so many different areas in terms of uh, finding the data, which is sort of what FOIA Mapper is about. In terms of organizing it and cleaning it, uh, in terms of putting together the architecture to store it, uh, and then I'd say from there, both analyzing it and uh, communicating it visually, so right. visualizing the data. Each of those steps is uh, is not trivial. And, yeah. uh, so I think that uh, it's really just an, uh, 
a huge opportunity out there to, to help people with these and make get value from, from sure. data. That's really what uh, what the business is about at a very at a very high level. The the first project we're working on deals with discriminatory lending, both from the perspective of uh, identifying it and helping to address the problem, mm-hmm. and also from the perspective of uh, the mortgage companies really helping them to identify whether they are doing it and right. dealing with uh, the regulatory issues that, that surround that. Uh, so there is a very large data set called, uh, it's the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act data, which includes for every year, nearly every mortgage application in the country. So the first project involves uh, digging into that data and looking for different kinds of patterns that, uh, that, that come out of it. Great, great. Well, um, yeah, I mean, there's clearly a need for more data analytics and, of course, data visualization and the whole spectrum of, of working with data. So um, good luck with that uh, new project. And um, I'm looking forward to seeing more things on your site, Microcosm. This has been really great, really interesting. Thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you very much. Glad to be here, John. Yeah. All right. Thanks again for everyone for listening and tuning in. Uh, that's it for this week's episode. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz Podcast. <laughs>